0: All right, good evening. Welcome to the Liquid Bible Chapel Sunday evening service. Uh, please open your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 and stand for the reading of God's Word. Uh, we'll be starting in verse 1. It reads, and you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. In Ephesians chapter 1, we learned of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. (laughs) These blessings include our election, our adoption, our redemption and forgiveness of sins, and our inheritance, all available to those who are found in Christ. And then Paul, anticipating the weight of what he has just taught in those verses, Praise for these Gentile saints to have the spiritual ability to truly understand these things. Remember that when Paul wrote this, there were no verse numbers or chapter breaks. This was one continuous letter that was meant to be read from start to finish. And so as we consider this evening's text in chapter 2, it's important to see Paul's train of thought from chapter 1 to chapter 2. As he finishes praying in chapter 1 about the power shown in us through Christ, raising us from the dead, he now turns our attention to that deadness that we were raised from, namely our pre-Christ spiritual condition. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention to verse 1, which says, And you were dead in your transgressions and sins. We were dead. Let me just say that I'm grateful for the words were and formerly that are found in our text this evening. I'm grateful for these words because the subject matter of this evening's text could be deeply uh, disturbing, discouraging, and full of great sorrow apart from them. But if you are in Christ, then you are no longer what these verses describe. You were what these verses describe. If you were in Christ then you are no longer burdened by the things in these verses. You were formerly burdened by them. And this is all because of what God has done through Christ in us. So be encouraged by your salvation, by your position that is in Christ this evening as we consider Paul's explanation of whom we used to be before Christ. It's also important to know that if you are not one of Christ's, if you are not saved, then Paul is describing you in our text this evening. He's describing your spiritual condition, a condition that consists of no less than death, enslavement, and eternal condemnation under God's wrath. There are only two kinds of people in this world, those who know Christ and are saved, and those who deny Christ and are condemned to eternal torment. If you're not saved and fall in the latter category, I encourage you to consider the salvation that Christ offers by faith. Repent of your sins and follow him as your Lord and your Savior. So Paul says that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. It is important to realize that Paul is describing everyone here, every Gentile, every Jew, everyone, if they do not know Christ. Paul includes everyone in his condemnation of humanity. Speaking of the Gentiles here in verses 1 and 2 when he uses the pronoun you, he then in verse 3 changes his pronouns to we and includes his former self along with the Jews. And then just in case it's not clear, he includes everyone else when he says, "...and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest." It is very interesting to note the similarity here with Romans, where Paul makes the very same argument in chapters 1 to 3 of the epistle, namely that both Gentile and Jew, namely that all of mankind is guilty before a holy and righteous God. And so Paul also makes the same claim here in these first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. So, what does it mean that we were dead? Well, it's helpful to understand what it means to be eternally alive in Christ and then contrast that with what it means to be dead apart from Christ. We know from John 17.3 that eternal life is to know the Father. John 17.3 says, and this is eternal life, so we're getting a definition right now of eternal life. It says that, you may, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So death here, in Ephesians chapter 2, is talking about those that don't know God, those that don't have fellowship with God, those that who are separated from God. And Paul confirms this when he says that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. John Stott explains the significance of Paul's use of the word transgressions, which also can be translated as trespasses. And his use of the word sins. Uh, John Stott says the following These two words seem to have been carefully chosen to give a comprehensive account of human evil. A trespass is a false step involving either the crossing of a known boundary or a deviation from the right path. A sin, however, means rather a missing of the mark, a falling short of a standard. Together, these two words cover the positive and negative, or active and passive aspects of human wrongdoing. That is to say, our sins of commission and omission. Before God, we are both rebels and failures. And this is the effect of our trespasses and sins, the effect of the evil and wickedness that we commit. Our iniquities separate us from God. (laughs) who can entertain nothing of the sort, for he is perfect in righteousness. Consider the following words in Isaiah 59, verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now here's something to consider. Dead men, something else to consider, dead men don't do anything. Particularly, dead men don't raise themselves from the dead. This is something that must be done by an external actor. When a person is spiritually dead, only God can give them spiritual life. R.C. Sproul is famous for the following quote He says, God just doesn't throw a life preserver to a drowning person. He goes to the bottom of the sea and pulls a corpse from the bottom of the sea, takes him up on the bank, breathes into him the breath of life and makes him alive again. And Paul makes this very point in Romans chapter 4, verse 17, where Paul, speaking of the patriarch Abraham, says, As it is written, A father of many nations I have made you, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. It is God alone who gives life to the dead. And it is God alone who calls into being that which does not exist. Christian, you were once dead. Praise be to God that his grace and mercy, uh, for his grace and mercy that has made you alive in Christ. It is not of yourself, it is indeed a gift of God. So with that in mind, let us realize soberly that every single person that does not believe in Christ is right now, as we speak, dead. They might be walking, they might be talking, they might be eating, they might be sleeping, but they are dead because they do not know Christ. And the rest of what Paul describes in our passage this evening is true for them right now. My hope is that this will cause us to have compassion on the lost uh, and to go to them out of love for them and show them the way to be made alive and find everlasting life in Jesus Christ because Christ has done this for us. All right, now let's turn our attention to verse 2 and the first part of verse 3, which reads as follows. In which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, According to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Here Paul turns our attention from the fact that we were dead before God made us alive to now consider the fact that we were also formerly enslaved. Verse 2 begins by saying that we formerly walked in our transgressions and sins. The path that we took when we were walking was one of wickedness, transgression, and sin. But consider the fact that this path or the way of life that we formerly had was in accordance with something. We were not just walking any old path, but we're following a particular path. We were enslaved to this way of living, to this particular path, which was rooted in transgressions, and sin. This enslavement to sin is nothing new in Scripture. Paul speaks of it throughout the New Testament, particularly in Romans 6, verse 6, which says, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. A key theme in Ephesians is our union with Christ. It is because we are united with Christ in his death that we too have died to sin, and in dying to sin, we were released from the slavery of it. Here in verses 2 and 3, Paul shows us that this path that we walked was in accordance with a threefold enslavement. First, our former way of life was lived out in accordance with enslavement to the course of this world. Second, our former way of life was lived out in accordance with enslavement to the ruler of the power of the air. And third, our former way of life was conducted in enslavement to the lusts and desires of the flesh and mind. And so here we are presented with the threefold spiritual battle that is waging all the time in the heavenly places, namely our battle with this world, our battle with Satan, and our battle with the flesh. Let's take a moment to briefly consider each of these now. First, we were enslaved to a way of life that accorded with the course of this world. What is the meaning of the phrase, course of this world? Well, it refers to this current age of evil darkness and refers to an entire system of unbelief, immorality, and sinful values. This wicked system is completely contrary and foreign to the perfect, righteous, and holy God of the Bible. This way of thinking, this worldview, enslaves those who live in the world apart from Christ. Indeed. Second, we are enslaved to a way of life that accords with the prince of the power of the air. And this phrase, prince of the power of the air, refers to Satan and his command over the principalities and powers, which Paul later mentions at the end of Ephesians 6 in verses 11 To twelve, which reads, Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And then Paul mentions this spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. The point that is being made here is that Satan, who is the ruler of the power of the air, is also the ruler of the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. This spirit is not a reference to Satan himself, but is more akin to the phrase, the spirit of the age. So spirit refers to a general societal way of thinking or worldview that stands in direct opposition and disobedience to the Lord. And this is what is uh, meant by sons of disobedience, those who are apart from Christ and enslaved to this world are also enslaved to Satan himself and have the heritage of disobedience toward their creator. They don't have a savior because they have not obeyed Christ's command to repent of their sins and believe in Christ as their Lord and Savior. By contrast... Believers are sons of obedience. Believers have heard the command of God to believe in Jesus Christ and responded with the obedience of faith. Speaking of Jesus Christ, Paul has this in mind when he writes the following in Romans 1 verse 5, which says, Through him, or through whom, we received grace and apostleship for the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name. And so Paul is telling us that Satan is able to easily work in the hearts of unbelievers because they do not have the obedience of faith, and thus they have no power to resist him by faith. They are sons of disobedience. And in case you doubt that Satan can have such influence, consider the story of Ananias and Sapphira, where Luke reveals the role that Satan had played in Ananias to lie about the money they were giving to the church. Acts 5.3 says the following, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? Thanks be to God that we are freed from our enslavement to the wishes, to the wishes and whims of Satan, that God gave us the gift of faith, which produces in us obedience to the Father, and which includes the ability to say no to the temptations that Satan brings into our lives. We are no longer sons of disobedience, brothers and sisters, but sons of obedience. Third, we were enslaved to a way of life that accords with the lusts and desires of the flesh and mind. I think it's important to acknowledge that our natural God-given desires are not in themselves sinful. To say that another way, there's nothing wrong with our desire for food, sleep, or even sex. In fact, when we enjoy these things, not in and of themselves, but as blessings from God, it brings glory to God. The thing that makes these desires sinful is when they become something perverted from God's natural order, and when they become idols in our hearts that replace the true satisfaction that only comes in Christ alone. And this is what Paul is talking about here. When our desire to eat turns into gluttony, when our desire to sleep turns into laziness, when our desire for sex turns into adultery, fornication, or even homosexuality. These things are no longer in accordance with God's created order, but instead go against His design for our lives. And so this is how we formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Okay, let's turn our attention now to the final phrase in verse 3, where we learn that before Christ saved us, we were not only dead, we were not only enslaved, but we were also condemned. Verse 3 finishes with this fate sealing phrase, and we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Children of wrath. And here's some common questions that people have when they read that statement. What does Paul mean here by wrath? What does Paul mean here when he says, child of this wrath? And further, what does it mean by the word nature? Well, wrath here can only mean the wrath of God towards sin. The context of our passage is Paul's teaching on our pre-Christian spiritual condition, which, as we've just seen, consisted of death in transgressions and sins, slavery to the world, slavery to the devil, and slavery to our corrupted, perverted, and sinful desires. It is for these transgressions and sins that we were condemned, and the rest of the world, apart from Christ, is still condemned. And it is for these transgressions and and sins that God's wrath exists and is poured out. And it is also for these transgressions transgressions and sins that Christ died on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God. Paul indirectly speaks of God's wrath in Romans 3.25 and the satisfaction of it In Christ's sacrifice for our sins, when he says, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through the faith, through faith for a demonstration of his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. We find Paul indirectly speaking of God's wrath in that word propitiation, which is a glorious word because it is It means the satisfaction of the wrath of the Father in Jesus Christ. His wrath was poured out. It was complete. It was emptied, no longer to be there against us. It's a popular saying, and I think a very helpful saying, that we are saved by God's sacrifice from God's wrath for God's glory. And so Paul is telling us that our spiritual condition before salvation was one of the Father's wrath directed toward us. Secondly, he uses this word wrath in the larger phrase, children of wrath. So, what does it mean to be a child of wrath? Well, it's much like the phrase sons of disobedience. Consider Paul's words in chapter 5, in Ephesians chapter 5, regarding this when he says the following in verses 5 and 6. For this you know with certainty that no one sexually immoral or impure or greedy who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So they're one and the same. The sons of disobedience are also the children of wrath. They're kind of two sides of the same coin. So what does Paul then mean that this is by nature? A well-known preacher has the following to say about this. He says, So it is God's wrath that is coming. We were by nature children of the wrath of God, which means that we naturally did those things which God hates. By nature we rejected the knowledge of God, and by nature we refused the gospel, and by nature we were filled with desires that amounted to idolatry. 1 Corinthians 2:14 says the following, but a natural man does not accept the depths of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined. And so Paul's point here is that this is deserving of God's wrath. Because it was our nature to do that which God hates, we were deserving of God's wrath. And just in case there's any doubt, Paul confirms in the last phrase of verse 3 that this is indeed the state of everyone who does not embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior when he says, even as the rest. Paul makes this clarification to emphasize the fact that before we were saved, we were no different than anyone else. There was nothing special about us that resulted in us obtaining salvation. We were just like all the other sons of disobedience. We were just like all the other children of wrath. We were dead in our transgressions and sins, just like everyone else. We were enslaved to the world, Satan, and our flesh, just like everyone else. And we were righteously condemned before a holy God for all of this, just like everyone else. And so the fact that we are now saved... We are now sons of obedience. We are now sons of the Father. We even can say, Abba, Father, is due to nothing in and of ourselves, but it is due to God's sovereign choice alone. And this should be familiar to us, given what we've been studying in chapter 1. Just as a refresher, I'd like to read chapter 1, verses 4 to 8. It says, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He graciously bestowed upon us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of His grace which He caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight. Marvel at the fact that God chose you, that God decided from eternity past that you would be predestined for salvation. Marvel at this because you are just like everyone else whom God has not chosen and predestined for these things. Marvel at the fact that God loves you because you are just like everyone else whom God has not shown this same saving love. Our salvation, God's decision to make us one of His, should produce in us a great humility, and not pride or arrogance. Arrogance comes when we think that we are the reason God chose us, when uh, that we somehow were different in some way, that God would prefer us over the rest. The ending of verse 3 puts that notion to bed. Before Christ, we were as the rest. The implication of this then is that there is no way that we would have chosen to believe in Christ apart from the sovereign work of God, to break us free from our former death, our our former enslavement, and our former condemnation. And this is known as the doctrine of total depravity, which is sometimes called the doctrine of total inability. Uh, That word inability is helpful, I think, in understanding what this means. Total depravity is defined in the Westminster Confession as follows. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So, as a natural man, being altogether averse from good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. This doctrine of total depravity is total. It removes the possibility of there being anything within ourselves that resulted in our salvation. Paul elaborates on this complete and total inability and total separation from God before Christ later in this chapter when he says the following in verse 12, remember that you were at that time without Christ alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I am grateful for that word remember as well. So what do we do with all of this? Well, I have four quick observations for us to take home. First, let us look through the lens of Scripture to understand what is going on in the world around us. The wickedness and insanity that we see is explained in the verses that we are considering this evening. The murder of babies in the womb and even outside of the womb. The perversion of sex and marriage with things like homosexuality and transgenderism. The direct attack on our children to turn them over to the spirit of the age. The utter corruption of the leaders of our nations. The hatred of God. All of this ultimately comes down to what these verses say. All of this is rooted in spiritual depravity, the rejection of God and the elevation of self as God. All of this is rooted in everyone in this world who is apart from Christ being dead in their sin, being enslaved as children of disobedience, and being condemned as children of wrath. Second, let us be a people that are grateful for what God has done to save us out of a place of such despair. And third, let us be a people who have compassion on those who are still lost, who are still dead in their transgressions and sins, who are still enslaved to Satan, this world and their flesh, and who are still standing in a position of condemnation before a holy and righteous God. And fourth, with that compassion in mind, let us be a people with the kind of compassion that means that we do not keep the gospel to ourselves, but instead we boldly go into this world and preach the gospel, the good news. We've had a lot of bad news tonight. Well, this is only half of the message. Come for part two next week, right? We do this, though, so that all those whom God has called will hear and be saved, One preacher gives the following exhortation on this passage, which I'd like to close with this evening. He says, The only way out of this cultural slavery is to listen to the witness of God about ourselves. Not the witness of the editorial page or the evening news or the Atlantic Monthly. God has spoken. His word is preserved for us in the Bible. If you let this book interpret your condition to be sure you will be an alien and an exile in this fallen age. But that is a small price to pay to be in step with God. All right, now I invite Noel to come back up and close us with a final song after I pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you and the weight of this text, Lord, with the reminder of who we were before Christ and the total depravity that we were in, Lord. We were sons of disobedience. We were children of wrath. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. And yet, Lord, you, by your love for us, by your sovereign saving grace, reached down to the bottom of that sea and pulled us up and breathed life into us, Lord. Life which we do not deserve to have, but by your mercy and grace, you have given it to us, Lord. I pray that we would Be grateful for what you have done in our lives, Lord. Such were some of us, but we are not that anymore, Lord, because of the change that you have made. So we worship you and we praise you for that, and we thank you for Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.